Uh, but it, I'm just so thrilled to introduce our main speaker today. Uh, and uh, Amy or Ewing does so many things, I can't even imagine how she does them all. First of all, she uh, is a mum to three kids, and she's married uh, to someone with the name of Frog, and uh, genuinely, and uh, they are leaders together of a church they planted together in Buckinghamshire called Atominster. Uh, on top of that, she's um, the European, Middle East, and African director for RZIM. She has committed her life to helping believers think and thinkers believe. Uh, she's also one of the directors of the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. She's got a degree from Oxford, a degree from uh, King's College London. She's written oodles of books, uh, one about how we can trust the Bible, which we're going to think about today, uh, one about extreme Islam. Her most recent uh, is about millennials, and uh, she's just a brilliant uh, speaker. She's spoken in the White House, she's spoken in Parliament, and she's been on Blue Peter. You're so shallow. You're genuinely most excited about that. Please put your hands together and welcome Amy or Ewing. Well, I'm not sure what to say after that. Blue, Blue Peter is the top. Um, it's a real privilege to be here today and um, very humbling to hear about the, um, the work you're doing in Cambodia. Um, it just struck me how amazing our God is, that his gospel, that the gospel that we have the privilege of knowing is, is relevant whether we're working in the White House, making policy at national and international levels, whether we're university students, whether we're a mum at home or at the school gate, um, or whether we're dealing with extreme poverty and the aftermath of godless ideologies and the kind of havoc that that can wreak at national international level. It also struck me that um, the Bible is extraordinarily powerful to speak into those myriad different situations. It's only really because of, of God's word that we know that human beings are created in the image of God and therefore have intrinsic dignity and value that causes us to care when we see the kind of images that we've seen. Um, lots of us will have been exposed, and I'm inc increasingly hearing on university campuses, well, you know, there's no God, it's all survival of the fittest, the weak are just eliminated by the strong, that's the way of the world. And actually the gospel and the message of the Bible is radically against that saying that my child's life, living in Gerald's Cross in Buckinghamshire, is of equal value to those children that we saw on the screen there in Cambodia. So we're going to spend a few minutes today thinking about this subject, why trust the Bible. And um, I don't know if you have friends or relatives who think that you're perhaps um, a little bit weird to believe or trust the Bible that there might be um, something missing up here if you're so naive as to trust the Bible. From the earliest days of Jesus and the apostles, though, Christians have invited scrutiny and have invited questions about the faith, confident that the truth can stand up to investigation, confident that the truth withstands the scepticism and scrutiny of any age or generation. 
As Pete said, um, I studied at, at Oxford and I studied theology there. And I had a number of intimidating experiences while I was there. One of them um, was to be called for a viva for my degree. Um, I was 21 years old and it was the day before my wedding. And it involved going down to the exam schools and appearing before a panel of 14 top professors of the university to justify what I'd written in one of my exam pieces. They hadn't done a viva in undergraduate theology for 23 years, um, so it was just my luck that it happened to be this year. And as I went in, there was this very austere-looking panel. They're all wearing their gowns in this incredible room, and there's a chair, and I had to go and sit in the chair. And after translating a bit of New Testament Greek, as I was called on to do, trembling, feeling incredibly nervous, I spent the last three, year, three weeks planning flower, flowers and menu plans for, for, for my wedding and was not really on top of my game. And one of the professors said to me, you don't honestly mean to tell us that after three years of studying at this university, you actually believe that Jesus said the words recorded in the Gospels. I mean, how naive are you? At that point, um, I prayed, <laughs> asked God for a bit of help, and replied with a question. My question was, well, you, you seem to be assuming that Jesus didn't say the words written on, in the Gospels. On what basis do you make that assumption? I can share with you some of the reasons that I believe what I believe, but I think it's important that you recognize that you are also bringing presuppositions. You're also bringing ideas to the table here, and those can be challenged too. Often as Christians, we fall into the trap of thinking that it's only Jesus, it's only the Bible, it's only the gospel that, that needs to provide answers. But doesn't every worldview, doesn't every position need to do the same? So as we um, begin this together, thinking specifically about the Bible, let's remember that it's not only the Christian faith that needs to answer um, for what we believe. Um, I come from a family that wasn't religious at all. Um, my, my own father was born in East Germany, and after the Russian occupation, um, his parents my grandparents recognized what life was going to be like um, under communism. And my grandfather was an atomic scientist. He was a brilliant man, and he made contact with the British Secret Service. And all the elite scientists were being moved to Siberia. He didn't want to go to Siberia, so he traded information for pass safe passage to here. So effectively, they were refugees. A small plane was sent to a little landing strip quite near their house. They had to um, leave everything they owned, everyone they knew. They just shut the door on their house and pretended they were going out for a day in the park. My dad was about five years old at this point. They got on this plane and came safely to the UK. But my grandfather was so committed to the idea that there wasn't a God on the basis of all kinds of experiences that he'd had in life, that he forbade the family from having a Bible in the house. He forbade the family from discussing God at all. So it was only when my dad became a professional academic himself, working as a lecturer in a university, got to 
his sort of mid-30s, my sister and I were born, it was only when he began to ask a question, is there more to life than this? It was only when that question led to the Lord Jesus appearing to him in his study while he was marking some exam papers with no music and no sort of church um, gubbins going on to create any kind of atmosphere, just at home on his own, saw Jesus. He found himself on his knees before a vision of Christ and he thought, I need to say something to, to Jesus. So he just said words that came into his mind. Having never read the Bible, he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Got up off the floor a Christian and the next day decided to go and buy a Bible from a bookshop. That was how I came to read the Bible, was through him. I wonder how you came to read the Bible. Well, let's begin by asking a few questions. Can we really trust this book, the Bible? Should we be skeptical like my professor um, all those years ago? Should we take it all with a bit of a pinch of salt? You know, are we incredibly susceptible and naive if we read the Bible and take it at, at face value? Can we really trust the miracles recorded in the Bible? Well, let's just take a few moments to think about what the Bible is. The Bible, of course, isn't just one book. It's a collection of 66 divided into two sections, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The Bible, contrary to a lot of popular belief, is not written all in one go. It's written over a period of 1,600 years, and it's written by more than 40 authors. And these are people from different kinds of backgrounds. We have kings and diplomats writing, but we also have poor people like Amos. He was the dresser of sycamore fig trees, the dirtiest job in his society. The Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and it was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. In other words, the Bible is not some kind of imperialistic white man's book imposed um, by one culture on all the other cultures of the world. Right there in the authorship, in the composition of this book is this extraordinary diversity. And then that diversity is immediately multiplied as, as the Bible is written, it's immediately translated into all sorts of languages and spread throughout the known world. And what that means is that when we come to look, particularly at the New Testament, and to look at the original, what we're dealing with is not just something written in Greek, we're dealing with, with literature that's also immediately translated into Syriac, Armenian, Arabic, even into Indian languages. Now, if we were to ask a question to say, you know, can we trust this piece of literature, there would be a few factors that we would need to weigh up. Particularly if that literature was, was purporting to accurately record things that happened. The first question would be, how close was what the author wrote to the events that occurred? Was there a long time difference between the author recording what happened and what actually happened? And a second question would be, how long is the distance between the author recording those events 
and the record of what that author wrote actually existing. Now, arguments that say we can't trust the Bible depend on those two times being very long. Does that make sense? So the time between the event happening and it being recorded, that needs to be a long time if you're not going to trust it. And then you can say things like, well, you know, it's been passed on by all these people and it's been changed along the way and we can't really be sure what happened. And then legends kind of accumulate and it's like this sort of snowball that begins to, to gather pace, but actually it doesn't have that connectedness to the events. The second time difference that's needed is that time lag between a manuscript that, you, that we could actually pick up and look at and when Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul actually wrote what they were writing. See, if there's a time difference, you can say, well, we can't be sure that what we've got is actually what those people wrote. You know, after all, it's been copied, it's been transmitted, lots of scribes will have been involved and they probably just inserted their own little ideas as they went along. So, you know, we can't be sure that it's actually connected to what they wrote, let alone actually connected to what happened. Does that make sense? So the intelligent person will say, well, can you really trust it? Aren't you being incredibly naive to read it and take it at face value? Well, what's amazing is that, that um, scholarship shows us that those two periods of time are increasingly diminishing. They're constantly diminishing. The period of time between the events occurring and those events being recorded. People used to think that's probably about 70, 80, maybe 100 years time difference. But it can't be, since we have fragments of the New Testament that are in a much um, nearer to the time. So, for example, um, just in 2012, a piece of Mark's Gospel was discovered in the ancient world's version of Papier-Mâché in a death mask. And um, so lots of manuscripts kind of ripped up at the time and made into a death mask. A piece of Mark's gospel from the first century, maybe from as early as 60 AD, that actually exists today in a collection in Turkey that you can go and look at. So it can't be a long time difference between the events occurring and them being recorded. Okay, well, you might say to me, just because we might be able to accurately, uh, or we might be able to trust what was written down, just because we're not saying, oh, well, it's been changed either between the events and the person, or between the person and the manuscript today. Just because we can trust that doesn't mean we should believe what they say. After all, what they wrote down might have been filled with errors. What they wrote down in the first place might not have been trustworthy. Well, when we come on to that question, we can ask a number of questions. And the first question is, where were these documents written? For the sake of time, we're just going to look at the four Gospels. Where were the four Gospels written? Well, according to scholars, the four Gospels were not all written in the land of the origin of the stories they tell, Israel-Palestine. Mark's gospel was written in Rome. Luke's gospel was written in Antioch. John's gospel was written in Ephesus in Turkey. And Matthew's gospel was probably written in Judea. 
Now, a skeptical person might say, the Gospels are written outside of the land of the origin of the stories they're telling, so they have no real connection with the events. And this is precisely what the leading um, sort of antagonist against the Bible today, Bart Ehrman, says. He says, where did these anonymous Greek-speaking authors, living probably outside of Palestine some 35 to 65 years after the events that they record, where did they get their information? Now, we're agreed on this, that the Gospels were written outside of the land of the events that they narrate, but that means that we can ask questions of the writers. How familiar were they with the land that they're talking about? Do they know the geography, the agriculture, the botany, the architecture, the traditions, the burial practices, the economics, the language, the law, the personal names, the culture, if you like, of the place? If you've never visited a place, it's very, very difficult to get those kinds of details right. And we're just going to look at one example of this today. And that is the example of names. So this is the second question. Do the writers call the characters the right thing? Now, um, I remember a few my twins are now 10. And uh, when Frog and I found out we were expecting twins, I'll never forget it. We were in, the, in that funny room in the hospital in London. And um, on goes that horrible jelly stuff. And they sort of looked for the heartbeat. And they said, ooh, there's another one. At which point, uh, my husband, being the sort of quiet retiring vicar that he is not, jumped up, threw his hands up to heaven and shouted, praise Jesus. <laughs> and um, the, the woman looked at us and went, that's not normally the reaction I get. <laughs> well, I remember we spent hours thinking about what are we going to call these children. We decided not to find out what their sex was. So we could have had two girls, we could have had two boys or a girl and a boy. So we needed all these combinations of names. We agonized and we prayed and we thought and we dreamed about names constantly. Now, if I were to ask you today, if you know what the 10 most popular baby names in Britain are right now, some of you might be able to do that. Some of you might be able to reproduce that list. If I were to ask you what were the 10 most popular baby names 30 years ago in Britain, you might even have a stab at that. If I were to ask you, what were the 10 most popular names 30 years ago in France? I suspect some of you would begin to struggle and you're not allowed to go online to check it out. In the time of Jesus, the same was true. Popular names change according to time and place. But now we can find out what they were. And this is an example of where geekdom can serve us well. A, a lady doing some research randomly in 2002 decided to do just a piece of research, not connected to the Bible specifically, on what people were called in the ancient world. Lists of mo the most popular names. And it's called... <laughs> The Tal Ilan lexicon of Jewish names in late antiquity, part one. <laughs> it's very exciting. But let me tell you, it is exciting. 
because this study looked at 3,000 instances of name record. Inscriptions, documents, all sorts of an exhaustive study of where any name at all came up. And then a Christian called Richard Borkham got hold of that study and he thought, you know what, it'd be really interesting to look at whether what people were actually called is reflected in the Gospels. In other words, do the Gospel writers get this correct? And what he discovered is fascinating. If we take Palestinian male Jewish names in the first century, in that order of popularity, just from this random study, what you see is the most popular name, Simon, second, Joseph, third, Lazarus, fourth, Judas, fifth, John, sixth, Jesus, seven, Ananias. On it goes. If you take the nine top Jewish male Palestinian names together outside the New Testament, they're 41% of the names used. Inside the New Testament, they're 40% of the names used. And that's a pattern showing up over four writers writing five books, if we include the Acts of the Apostles, which Luke wrote as well. The Gospels reflect this pattern corporately and individually. Now, what makes it even more exciting is that a study was done of male Jewish names, not in Palestine where Jesus was living and ministering, but in Egypt, a few miles away. Greco-Roman Egypt had a large Jewish community. And if you look at the most common Jewish male names from Greco-Roman Egypt, here's what you discover. Number one, Eleazar. Number two, Sabbateus. Three, Joseph. Four, Dosethius. Five, Pappus. Six, Ptolemaeus, seven, Samuel, and on it goes. Names like Sabbateus, Dosethius, and Pappus are in the top ten in Egypt, but they're not in the Gospels. Why not? Because the Gospels were not written about Jewish people living in Egypt. They were written about Jewish people living in Palestine. And even though the writers were writing far away, Rome, Ephesus, Antioch, they got that detail right. Now, I wonder if you would know today how the names in Egypt, Jordan, or Syria differ from one another. I certainly wouldn't. The gospel writers get that right. Okay, I need to speed up because I want to tell you a couple of other things. The gospel writers don't just get the right statistical proportions of names, they also get the right features of names. Imagine a fictional world where a mother goes out into the street and calls her children and they come running immediately first time. I know, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> but let's imagine a first century mother in, in Palestine goes out and she calls out, Simon! Hundreds of Simons would come running. She would need to distinguish one Simon from another. What's fascinating is that in the Gospels, this happens with this name. Jesus had two Simon disciples. One was Simon Kephas, the other Simon the Zealot. He had dinner with Simon the leper. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. Simon Peter stayed in the book of Acts with a guy called Simon the Tanner. We could do the same with the name Mary. Fascinating. When we study the Gospels, what we see is that the Gospel writers know when to distinguish and when not to distinguish. There's a list in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, 
of the disciples. You can look it up if you want. And what you see is that the popular names, according to this academic study, are disambiguated. They're distinguished. But the unpopular names aren't. They're just left to stand because there was probably only one of them. So people knew which one. Simon, number one on the list, called Peter and Andrew his brother. James, number 11 on the list, high-ranking name. He's the son of Zebedee. John, number five, is his brother. Philip, he's only number 61 on the list. He gets no qualifier. Bartholomew, he's only number 50, no qualifier. Thomas doesn't even make it into the top 100, nothing on him. But Matthew, he's number nine, he's the tax collector. James, number 11, is the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, he's only number 39, no qualifier. Simon, number one, is the Canaanian. Judas, number four, is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. Brilliant evidence, evidence that the Gospels are eyewitness testimony. They get this sort of detail right. We also see it in dialogue where people talk, a narrator talks about things and then reports direct speech. And there's a brilliant example in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, where, um, remember that girl did the dance, Herodias' daughter, and as her prize, she wanted John the Baptist's head on a platter. That was my favorite picture in the children's Bible that we had. I used to turn to it every week the head on the platter and my children have inherited that but now I love this passage for a different reason you see in chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 they, Herod says to the servants this is John the Baptist and then the narrator continues just using the name John but later on when Herodias's daughter her direct speech is reported and she's asking for a head on the platter she says I want the head of John the Baptist, she doesn't want any old John, she wants a specific John. Dialogue specifies when necessary. This is amazing evidence. And I could, we could do the same with geography, with the economic system, we could do the same with building shapes. But just this one piece of evidence, amazing evidence, that we can trust what is recorded for us in the Bible. How are we doing for time? One last thought, and I'll finish. Okay, my skeptical friend might say to me, okay, we can trust that what we're reading is what was actually written. It's been well transmitted. It's been recorded accurately. We may even be able to trust that it's based on eyewitness testimony. But really, miracles? And not just miracles today that I might be able to observe. I can still tell you where I was when I saw the first miracle in Jesus' name I ever saw. And it was in Sunday school in a church in the inner city in Birmingham that my dad was leading. There were a group of 10 of us. And we were sort of 10, 11 years old. And we'd been doing a Bible study on Jesus the healer. One of the girls in our group had a real, um, really visible skin cirrhosis all over her arm and up her neck. And someone in the group said to the Sunday school teacher who was someone's mum, you know, um, well, we've been learning about Jesus the healer. Why don't we pray for that? And um, now looking back, I just feel so sorry for that teacher. But um, bless her. She said, okay, let's all pray. And we prayed. 
and we just saw her arm up, it went upwards from the hand up, being healed all the way up to here. Okay, so our skeptical friend might say, okay, well, if I saw that, I might believe, but you're asking me to believe in miracles that were written down thousands of years ago, not just to believe them, but to change the course and trajectory of my life on the basis of them. I mean, give me some credit. Can I really believe in a miracle that's been recorded in history? Well, what we might answer in that situation is that if we have an a priori, that means an in advance commitment to the impossibility of the supernatural. In other words, we're intellectually committed that it's impossible that miracles happen, then clearly we're not going to believe what we read recorded in the Bible. But that itself is a faith commitment that can and should be challenged. It's not based on reason, it's an assumption. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about miracles. He said, if on each of two nights I put 10 pounds in my bedside drawer, the laws of arithmetic tell me I now have a total of 20 pounds. If, however, on waking up I find only 5 pounds in the drawer, I don't conclude that the laws of arithmetic have been broken, but possibly the laws of England. Okay. In other words, the laws of nature describe to us the regularities on which the universe normally runs, but God, who created the universe and those laws, is not a prisoner of those laws, just like the thief is not a prisoner of the laws of arithmetic. And like my room, the universe is not a closed system. God can, if he wills, do something special, like raise Jesus from the dead like heal someone's body. And it's important to know at this point that it is my knowledge of the laws of arithmetic that warn me that I've been robbed. If we didn't know the laws of nature that dead people stay in tombs, we wouldn't be able to recognize a resurrection. In other words, natural law enables us to receive revelation, miracles that break through that natural law. And when we do investigate biblical miracle claims, such as the resurrection of Jesus, we may be surprised by what we discover. At the Oxford Centre of Christian Apologetics, we just hosted Professor Richard Swinburne, one of the leading philosophers, moral philosophers of, our genera of his generation. And he wrote a book a few years ago using Bayes' theorem, a probability theorem, examining the resurrection of Jesus. And he concluded in his study that the probability of the resurrection of Christ having actually occurred is 97%. And then as the, one of the world's leading philosophers, he defended that at academic conferences all over the world. Are the miracle claims of the Bible quite as stupid and naive as we may fear? I suggest to you this morning, no. Have confidence that his word stands, it stands up to scrutiny, and it's powerful. The word of God is so powerful. Finish very briefly with this. I, um, a few years ago, had the privilege with my husband and another friend who's now leading a church in, um, in Malaysia. We were students, we um, felt this call from God to go to Afghanistan. The Taliban had just taken power. 
And uh, the night before we left, we were just going as a prayer team. But the night before we left, I had a dream in which I saw um, us giving Bibles to the Taliban leadership. So I shared this encouraging dream with the team and they thought, <laughs> okay, we'll put some Bibles in our rucksacks. Don't have time to tell you um, the amazing miracles, how we got through closed borders and passed all sorts of drug things. And I mean, it was just unbelievable on one level, but it happened. And we found ourselves in the military headquarters of the Taliban. John Simpson had just made his landmark and documentary about them. And he just left and we were the next people in to see them. We met the education minister, the um, foreign minister and the keeper of the Holy Quran, the religion minister. At the end of our meeting, we produced the Bibles from our bags and they were all heavily armed with Kalashnikovs and we expected to die. And there was a deathly silence as I wasn't allowed to speak. I was just there as the woman taking notes. It's a deathly silence as Frog, my husband, said, well, we've brought you this precious gift, the most precious gift we think one person can give another person. And then Miles says, this is the Holy Bible. We stood like... They took hold of the Bibles and nobody spoke. They all looked to the religion minister. He took hold of it and he began to speak. He said, I know exactly what this book is. I have been praying to God for years that I could read the Bible. Thank you for bringing it. I'm going to read it every day. At which point we all relaxed. <laughs> I had a similar experience with the grand imam of um, a country I can't name today, two years ago. God is doing amazing things. His word is powerful. Don't let your confidence in his word be shaken. Don't let your confidence in who he is rooted in his word be stolen away by lazy memes that just go around our culture that are not connected to truth or reality. Amen.